Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Geezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and CastBox. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. We have another great show for you. I'll speak with Siena men's lacrosse coach Liam Gleason as the Saints get ready to open their season on Saturday when they host LIU. And I'll talk with USA Today NBA beat writer Mark Medina, who had the final interview with Los Angeles Lakers great Kobe Bryant a few days before his tragic death January 26th. Now that the NFL season is over, and congratulations to the Kansas City Chiefs for winning Super Bowl 54 on Sunday, it's time to start thinking about baseball. Pitchers and catchers will be reporting to spring training in a few days, and that includes two former Shenandoah High School standouts. Ian Anderson heads to Venice, Florida with the Atlanta Braves, while his brother Ben Anderson goes to Surprise, Arizona for his first spring training with the Texas Rangers. I visited the brothers on Monday at their home in Rexford to discuss the upcoming season. Oh, uh, Ian and Ben, thank you for coming on the uh, Party Shots podcast, and it's nice to be able to talk to a little baseball here in the uh, wintertime, and uh, as you guys get set for spring training, uh, how excited are you as uh, we get approached uh, spring training? Start with Ian. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, definitely very excited. You know, obviously it's freezing cold here, so it's hard to think about baseball, but uh, within the week, we'll be down in Florida, and the weather will change, and um, I'm ready to go. So. Mm-hmm. Hi, thanks for having yeah. us as well. Um, so this is obviously my, my first spring training, um, so I'm definitely really excited. Um, out in Arizona, the weather's, I think, nicer than Florida, so that's <laughs> great. But um, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a great experience and definitely going to be very competitive. Is it going to be tough for you guys, obviously, in, in different states to try to catch up with each other and see how things are going? Um, we've never really had a problem with it. Um, when we went our separate ways, I went off to college and he went down uh, to do his thing with Atlanta. I mean, we've always stayed in touch every single day when, honestly, every day. Like, probably haven't not talked in a day for, I couldn't tell you how long. Yeah, see a little cat here on the uh, table that lets us get involved in the interview. <laughs> uh, for you, uh, Ian, this is your, looking up, this is your fifth year in a Braves organization. Does it seem like five years? Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, you look at the age and I'm still only 21, going to be 22 in May. And, um, you know, at least on the minor league side, you kind of feel like a veteran going in, you know, cause you see so many new guys getting drafted, uh, and just being around for, for five years has been, uh, been awesome. And, you know, I think I can kind of step into a little bit more of a leadership role with younger guys when, when they come up, which sounds crazy to say, like I said, but yeah. Um, I've, I've seen a, seen a good bit so far in the minor league, so I feel like I can help guys out quite a bit. Now, you're not on the 40-man roster yet, correct? No, I'm not. Does that bother you as you head into the spring trade, or is that something you're not really overly concerned with at this uh, point? No, I'm not too concerned. Uh, just with you know all the protection rules going on now, uh, you know, I think my, my ticket to being on the 40-man roster would be a, a spot on the 25-man you know, up with the big club, so uh, I'm not too worried about it. What are your expectations uh, heading into spring training with the Braves? I mean, they're coming off another division title. Um, looks like they're getting back to where they were back in the 90s when, the, when Bobby Coxon was running the team. Uh, what have the Braves told you, and what are your expectations as you head down there? Um, you know, as of right now, I think, you know, you look at the roster, and they, they got four four locked-in starters pretty much. But, 
uh, the fifth spot, I think, is up for grabs. So I'm going to go in competing for that. Um, whatever you know, whatever happens, happens. But I'm going to going to do everything in my willpower to to try to compete uh, for that spot. Uh, definitely going to be competitive. You know, I signed Felix Hernandez, who will be great just to learn from, and um, you know, Cole Hamels as well will be awesome to learn from. But you got guys like Kyle Wright and Bryce Wilson and and Tuki Toussaint that that are going to be competing for that spot, and Sean Newcomb as well. So. Um, no, I'm, I'm welcoming the challenge. I think it'll be it'll be fun. What do you think you can learn from maybe a veterans like Cole Hamels and uh, Felix Hernandez when you get get down there? Uh, I think that there's unlimited potential of things you can learn from them. Um, you know, they're talking about guys that have been around a long time and you know don't necessarily have the stuff that they had back when they broke in. I mean, and still have found a way to, to pitch and get guys out and, and be at the top of the game. So I think. Uh, you know, just being out, being around those guys, seeing the way they go about about their work, and um, you know, listening to some of the things they've experienced will be great. Ben, for you, as you said, your first spring training. Uh, what are your expectations? What are the Texas Rangers' expectations of you as you uh, get started in your first full season of uh, pro ball? Um, so yeah, I mean, Texas is is definitely on the come up as an organization. I mean, back from when they had those back to back. American League championships, um, but with the new stadium open and stuff, it's going to be definitely an exciting spring training on both sides, major league and minor league. Um, I'll be on the minor league side, just trying to kind of get my footing for my first spring training. Obviously, um, get used to how it's how it's going to operate, and really just preparing for hopefully a full, healthy season of baseball. Uh, where, where are your expectations as far as where you're going to start uh, the year in, in in the organization? Have they told you uh, single A? Uh, where, where at this point? Um, so I'll be competing when I go to spring training for a spot in the rotation in single A. So I'm excited about that. Get a chance to really show them what I can do after being hurt for a little bit towards the end of last season. What happened there? Um, just just a couple, just some some pain in my shoulder, but worked hard with their staff and everything, and they helped me get back on track. Is that the result of maybe obviously pitching in college and then going right to the pros after you uh, signed with Texas? Um, it was it was definitely a big jump of just innings-wise from only being a pitcher for a short amount of years, um, making a huge jump from being an important part of the that Binghamton team that I was on um, and then making that transition to really throwing a lot of innings. And for you, you know, your overall record in minor is 17-21, but obviously they don't the organization doesn't look at uh, the record. They're looking at your performances. Are they happy with what you've been doing? Yeah, I think so. I think it's been a, been a pretty steady progression. Um, you know, I got drafted in 2016 and you know, in AAA by the end of 2019. I think it's, it's been a good progression for me. And um, you know, obviously, there's, there's been some challenges along the way, just some bumps in the road, but that's expected. And I think that's that's where you find out the most about yourself and, and learn the most uh, going forward. Yeah. What um, Think just thinking of you know the adjustments you guys had to make. You know, you decided to you know forego college to go pro. You uh, Ben decided to go to college after Toronto drafted you. I mean, are there any regrets about those decisions you made? Uh, not not for me on my part, and I think he'd probably say the same. Yeah, I, I can't. <laughs> I can't think of anything honestly. I had a great great experience at Binghamton. Um, ended with a great year last year. I really can't. Can't complain about it. I had it. a good experience at Binghamton, too. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, it's been fun. You know, just we're able to reflect on kind of our different paths and, um, you know, hopefully with the same end goal. So it's it's been cool. 
How much is it, was your dad influence? Obviously, uh, coached at Chalmont for a long time. I mean, how much did he, was his influence in getting you guys prepared for these, uh, for the, you know, to to pitch uh, in you know, first high school and then uh, on to the to pros? Yeah, no, he's he's done more than we can say, you know, for us baseball wise, uh, and also you know just just raising you know us and then our two other brothers. Him him and my mom did such a good job, and um, you know I know they're very proud of that. So. Um, you know, he, he obviously being a coach, having having the success he had was was great, and uh, you know playing playing a little bit uh, definitely definitely rubbed off on us. Yeah, I mean he's just he's been there for us with with anything, with every decision we've ever had to make. I mean, obviously Ian's the shit decision a little tougher, you know, foregoing a big big chance in college to sign him professionally, and then my decision as well, which was also just as big. Him and my mom both were were huge in that, and they were very supportive either way I mean they've been supportive with with every decision we've ever made every practice they've taken us to and and everything we've ever had to do which is something you really can't take for granted meanwhile once again you're a nice cat once again <laughs> you have anything to say uh, what's what's the cat what's the cat's name Charlie Charlie yeah. Charlie you have anything to say like Uncle Charlie the <laughs> Well, if we get going back to old age Uncle Charlie was in my three sons so I, that's how old I am but uh, um your thoughts on your both your teams as uh, the, the organizations and your practices. The Braves are coming off a, another East Division title. Do you think they're they can get past uh, the, the first round of the playoffs this year? Is this a, a chance with all with the moves they made? Yeah, no, I think it's been a good off season for the Braves. Obviously, um, you know, losing Donaldson, I think was tough, but they got guys ready to step in like Camargo and Riley and um, Acuna at the top of the lineup with Albies as well and, and Freeman just. Plugging along, doing what he does, as as I think probably one of the best players in the league. Um, I, I think that it's it's looking bright for them, definitely, and the young pitching as well. So, and of course, the Nationals defending World Series champions in the division. As I told you, as I introduced myself, I'm born and raised in Philadelphia, and a Phillies fan. I'm so I, I I'll root against you anytime uh, while you're pitching, especially against the Mets. But when you pitch against the Phillies, I'm yeah. I, I'm, I'm booing you. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Trust me. What about for you, Ben? Uh, what the Texas Rangers I mean? What are their expectations? Obviously, playing in the West Division now with um, the, the cheating scandal about the Houston Astros, and I'll ask you Ian, in a moment what your thoughts about that. But uh, what are the Texas Rangers' expectations heading into 2020? I mean, they're gonna they're gonna have a lot of young players, but some some solid veterans on the pitching staff. Obviously, getting Corey Kluber this year is going to be huge for them. Um, like I said earlier, opening that new stadium, which is which is absolutely gorgeous. I'm hoping to draw some more fans in, fill those seats, and I would say just be be a competitive team again, like they were back when uh, they were winning those title those American League titles. Now we know baseball. There's you know teams look to steal signs. It's you know it's it's an unwritten rule, but it happens. The way the Astros were caught doing it, uh, what does it? What, how much damage has has that done to Major League Baseball? Um, no, that's a, that's a tough question. Obviously, we haven't been involved quite with that yet, so it's hard to tell. Um, you know, like you said, sign stealing's been involved, you know, forever, and it's always been part of the game. There's always been ways to deal with it, and um, you know, once technology gets involved, it, it definitely gets a lot tougher to to one figure out that's going on and to you know handle it during the game. Um, so I think it's been tough in that regard, but you know, with how fast technology is improving these days, the rules were bound to fall behind, and Houston kind of manipulated it in a way. Not saying that it's right by any means, but um, I think that it was almost inevitable, and I think 
obviously there's some other teams out there doing it too. Yeah, and Ben, you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously a tough situation. Like, at the highest level, guys are always looking for just a little bit of an edge. I mean, all those guys are so talented that sometimes you need a little bit of an edge to, to, take, to win. So, I mean, obviously it's not – it's tough to see. Uh, as a pitcher, it's not what you yeah, want to see. Definitely, but, not, uh, definitely not good there. But yeah, but I mean, I think I think the the league's doing a good job dealing with it, um, and we'll see what happens going forward. Well, Ian Anderson and uh, Ben Anderson, I appreciate you coming on the podcast for a few minutes. Uh, good luck uh, this season, except for when you play the Phillies, as I said. And I think Texas plays the Phillies this year. I think the way the division in the interleague. But uh, well, yeah. But uh, again, thank you very much, and uh, good luck this season. Uh, hopefully, we'll chat soon again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sienna Men's Lacrosse Head Coach Liam Gleason joins me next. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Castbox. Hi, this is RPI Men's Hockey Coach Dave Smith, and you are listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Back on the Party Shots podcast, it may be the first full week of February, but it's time to think college lacrosse. The Siena Men opens its season Saturday when the Saints host LIU at 1 p.m. And to help me preview the Saints season is their head coach, Liam Gleason. Now, Liam, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Ken. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. I, uh, it's a you know, busy week for you, obviously. Uh, it just seems like the season's starting earlier and earlier in college across. I mean, we're, as we take this Wednesday, they're talking about some snow on Thursday, maybe some wintry mix. It's kind of crazy to think lacrosse at this time of year. Yeah, I, I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been uh, we've been very fortunate the last uh, couple of weeks here to have um, some pretty pretty great weather for for late January and February. But of course, just in time for the the home opener, we're calling for some uh, some snow and ice. Uh, so you know, without fail, winter's gonna let you know it's uh, it's still here. Yeah. Uh, tell about how this game come about. I know um, Adam Schinder is gonna be covering the cross for for us at the Gazette, and they uh, had an interesting story how this uh, game all came about with LIU. Well, it's um it's a it's a great story as far as uh, Eric Wolf, the head coach there, um, and I both uh, graduated actually from U Albany in two thousand seven. Um, where I got my first job at Siena College in 2008, uh, and, or 7 into 8, and Eric was um, actually stayed at Albany as a, a director of lacrosse operations. But we reunited in, um, in 2009 at Siena College as assistant coaches, and we, uh, we had a great year. We won the first ever MAC championship for Siena, um, went on to stay together in 2010, um, where we had another great season. And, um, you know, we kind of just, you know, we were both living in the same area. We lived together for a couple of years uh, after college. Um, I went on to uh, the College of St. Rose to be the first ever head coach there, and Eric stayed one more year at Siena until uh, we actually reunited the following year um, and were together for another four years um, as assistant coaches at Albany before Eric left for Harvard. Um, and now here we go. Um, you know, both of us uh, a couple of years uh, further on, and we're both head coaches and uh, going to be meeting up on different sides of the field at a familiar place uh, at Siena College. But uh, you know, now both in different roles and different parts of our career, and um, it should be it should be a lot of fun. Every time you're mentioning about how you guys seem to reconnect, I'm thinking of in my, my mind. Of course, I'm old enough to remember this song. I don't know about you, but uh, Peaches and Herb uh, reunited, and it feels so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that song. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and I'm, I'm excited for Eric. You know, he, he, uh, he was fortunate enough to, um, 
you know, be named the head coach at LIU a couple of years ago, and they went through a transition uh, where their the LIU Post campus and LIU Brooklyn campus uh, merged, and and all sports went Division One. So, uh, you know, it's it's really cool to see, um, you know, now both of us being head coaches at Division One. You know how we got here. Yeah. Well, you just completed your first year last year as a head coach of Seattle. It went six and seven. Uh, three and four in the MAC. Uh, what did you learn about the team last year as you, uh, you know, went through the first year? Well, you know, when we first got here, we we really just focused on um, on the culture, and I've always believed that the culture is um, is one of the biggest deciding factors of, of wins and losses, and, and sustaining a, a successful team over a long period of time. Uh, so that was our, our first focus, and, and the guys really bought in. It just it takes a little bit, you know. Um, so that first year, I think some of the things we did definitely helped us. You know, we we did get um, we did went double our win total from the years um, years before that, but um, it was still kind of just the foundation getting going here. Um, I was definitely happy with the way year went, uh, more so of the stuff we did off the field. Um, but you know, winning some games in the MAC. Um, getting some good out of conference wins for St. John's and UMass Lowell, that all that all helped with um, the guys buying in. Also, what does that do for the team's confidence heading into this season? Well, I think the guys, especially this year, um, being year two for my staff, um, you know, they they know our expectations. Um, it was a little less on, um, you know, we still work on the culture every single day, but it was a little less of uh, just us explaining the four classes. Where now we have three classes backing it up um, and, and understanding those expectations, which really helped us move along um, a lot further uh, in the fall and, and starting this spring, which is, this is the quickest spring turnaround I've ever had. We, we, you know, we came back on the 17th, so this is really almost just about three weeks um, of practice before our first game. But I believe the confidence we have is from um, having familiarity with, with what our ex- expectations are from uh, the first day in September this year. I mean, you're gonna you don't have uh, two of your top scores back in uh, Keenan Cook and uh, Mike Riley. Uh, they combined for nearly 100 points uh, last season. Uh, who's going to take up the slack? Yeah, those are two. Those are two big holes. Both guys over 100 points in their career. Um, but last year, both of them uh, were big, big uh, parts of our offense. I, I like uh, Jack Kiernan is one of our juniors. He's, he's a strong lefty. Uh, he was a starter on attack, so he's the he's the returning uh, the one returning starting uh, attackman. Jack's got a great shot and very good at creating for himself. And then at the midfield, uh, you know Dylan Panalone. He was a first team All Mac player for us last year. Um, he garners a lot of attention from the top uh, the other team's top midfield defender. Um, I think you know last year people knew he was pretty good, but now you know after being all uh, first team All Conference, he'll he'll get more attention, which. I think we'll allow him to distribute a little more, um, and that's something he, he has a good part of his game is he, he knows how to share the ball and see the slides coming, and uh, I think he'll, uh, he'll do a lot for us at the midfield. Who do you expect to step up uh, that you know, maybe had some you know, limited playing time last year but that you liked? We uh, so we return a lot of the midfield, which I really do like. But a, a newcomer, a guy who got a little bit of time last year, um, would be uh, sophomore Chris Christian Watts. He he's got a cannon. Uh, he's like six four, shoots the ball well over hundred miles per hour. Um, and you know he's a guy that got a couple of runs here and there last year, but this year uh, you know he's made himself into uh, made his way into the the midfield rotation, and he's uh, he's he's I expect him to, to do well in his sophomore year campaign. Goaltending-wise, uh, we had a story, again, Adam Schindler talking about uh, Anthony Tabano. As freshman, he was a year, he, he was a starter. Last year, he was, 
and watching most of the games as Darren Lewis uh, you know, started uh, the majority of the games. What's the uh, Bono's status and what's the goaltending situation looking like? Yeah, well, right now Anthony's uh, he's our starter. Um, he's he's had a great fall, uh, and then in preseason um, where he really uh, he worked on the things we wanted him to focus on, and that was that was having a presence down there. Um, you know, I look at the the goalie position um, as the quarterback of the defense, so I, I I want that guy to to be the guy that instills confidence with the players in front of him, runs to clear. Uh, you know, when things are going bad and, and the D guy turn around, they know they got that, you know, that, that alpha in behind him. And, and that's something Anthony had to work at. You know, I don't think it's something he was always used to uh, doing. And um, I asked him to really focus on that. And he, he's really developed that presence. Uh, behind him, he's got three goalies that are really pushing him hard. And, uh, and that always helps, too. You know, I, I think he's, uh, he's got the confidence that we believe that he's a starter, but he also knows he's got some guys behind him that, uh, you know, would love to be in his position. Is that a jolt you know, for a player to, you know, freshman year they're starting, they're the number one starter, and then you know, sophomore year they're finding themselves. I mean, how, how does that work for the health, health their I mean, confidence? Now, how do they handle it? And how did he handle that whole situation? Yeah, well, you know, he actually did start the, the first game of the year last year um, against Hobart. So he was slated to be the, the starter in the first game of the year in his sophomore year. Um, and it was a tough game for us. Uh, we, we struggled at the face-off X. Um, uh, pretty, we, were, we were probably like 10%. And in our game, when it's, you know, it's not hockey or, or any other sport with the face-off, when you win that face-off, you got that ball. And, you know, you're controlling the tempo of the game. Uh, and sometimes we call it make it, take it. You score a goal, uh, score a goal, you get the ball back. It's like winners in, in you know, in, in one on one or two and two uh, basketball. So, um, you know, he, he saw a lot of rubber, um, and you know, we let up a lot of goals. Uh, and I made a change in the fourth quarter. And, and honestly, Aaron Lewis last year, he came in, he had that that fire, that intensity to him, um, and that's kind of what I was looking for. So, Aaron. Um, you know, he did a great job the rest of the year for us having that spark, that presence. And then for Anthony, he responded, you know, with, uh, you know, he obviously wanted to maintain, retain his starting spot, but at the same time, he knew what I was looking for. And that's something he continued to work on. Um, and we didn't, you know, we did give him some time here and there throughout the year, but, um, you know, our decision last year mostly uh, evolved around that presence, and that's where we thought Aaron was. Uh, was was strong for us, but that's what that's where Anthony's got for us now. Um, he's really developed to be that kind of presence that I was looking for, um, and he's that spark for us. He's got the confidence, knowing that we believe in him, and um, you know I think he's uh, going to do a great job for us this year. What are your expectations when uh, Mac play starts? You know, I'd love for us right now to just really dial it in in these non-conference games. I think we got a great non-conference schedule, so um, if we can really get you know get to where we need to be for conference play, you know, we were picked six preseason last year. We were picked six preseason this year. So, um, you know, last year we were very fortunate. Um, I shouldn't say fortunate. We were, we 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 had a great start. We went three and zero. We also had a chance in the MAC. We had a chance to win. Uh, one more game four times and did it. And if we won one more game, we would have been in the MAC playoffs. So for us, it's, it's getting to that four or five wins in the MAC and, uh, and getting into the MAC playoffs. And, you know, once you're in the playoffs, it's anybody's game. And, uh, we're very fortunate we play in the MAC conference. We have an, an automatic qualifier. Um, so if, you know, we win it, we're going to the dance. So I, uh, I'd love to, you know, our goal right now is to, to dial it in these non-conference games and get ourselves ready for, um, conference play, which, I think it's it's a strong conference. It's one of the toughest conferences. It's not really a, a heavy top 
um, and, and a low bottom. It's uh, you know it's a it's a game where um, it's a conference where any team can beat any team, and you see a lot of parity. Um, last year, uh, the playoff uh, decisions went all the way to the last week, so um, you know you got to bring it every week. And for us, it's about focusing in on, uh, on these nine conference games coming up and, and getting ready for conference play uh, later on. Well, Liam, I appreciate a few minutes here. Uh, good luck uh, this season. Uh, try to stay warm on Saturday and uh, have some fun. Uh, we certainly will. I think we're, we're calling for uh, an 18 real feel for game time. So uh, it's going <laughs> to, I hope it benefits Dub State team, you know? Yeah, sounds good. Well, thank you again, Liam. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Kevin. All right, that's Liam Gleason. Up next, I'll talk to USA Today NBA beat writer Mark Medina, who had the last interview with Kobe Bryant. You're listening to the Barney Shots podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and CastBox. Hi, this is Mark Kestisher, the voice of the NBA on ESPN Radio and proud member of the 518 from Gilderland High School. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Shot. Now, here's Ken. Back on the Parting Shots Podcast. The death of Kobe Bryant his daughter Gianna, and seven others in the helicopter crash January 25th still resonates with people. On Tuesday, I had the opportunity to talk with Mark Medina, who covers the NBA for USA Today. Mark covered the Lakers, first as a blogger for the Los Angeles Times, and then as a beat writer for the Los Angeles Daily News. Mark and I have something in common, as we are alums of the York Daily Record in South Central Pennsylvania. We talked a little bit about that, before getting into his thoughts on Kobe Bryant. Well, Mark, appreciate you coming on the uh, Parting Shots podcast, and uh, it's nice to talk to a former uh, York Daily Record alum. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a shame it's under these circumstances, but uh, it's always good uh, to chat with uh, people that know other people in the, in the Daily Record. Yeah, so it's cool. Great. It was a great paper to work. It was my first job, and it was a lot of fun there. So, and I you know, read your bio, and uh, your, you, you said your mom would you know, take it to games and cover. That's that's dedication. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I mean, my dad would do the same. Uh, you know, with, I mean, this was only a year and a half uh, when I was in high school, where you know I, I didn't have my driver's license yet because I wasn't of age, and so um, you know sometimes my mom would drop me off a game. Sometimes my dad would take me and. We'd, uh, you know, we'd watch the games together, so it, it was a fun time, but eventually, by my junior year, I had my own car, and then I just went on my own. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about, uh, you know, the unfortunate uh, passing of Kobe Bryant, and you were the last uh, reporter to have a sit-down interview with him. Did you, you know, when you heard the news, um, what, were you, what were your initial thoughts? The initial thoughts was shock and also, I think, from a journalistic standpoint, like, want to make sure this is accurate because you just never know in today's world. Um, that being said, for all the uh, criticism that TMZ often rightfully gets, usually they're not wrong with these things, so you do take it seriously. But, you know, once I started making some calls and uh, one person that answered the phone said, hey, I have to call you back. That that wasn't confirmation enough to go ahead and run with it, but in my mind it was confirmation enough to think, oh boy, this is bad news. Yeah. So then it was, I think, how everyone handled it, a lot of grief and shock. Um, I think for me, uh, it then turned into 
just having to go into reporter mode because I had a story to cover, so I'm making calls, I'm driving to Calabasas because of uh, the fact that that's where the, the crash site was, so you're thinking, okay, just try to get whatever information you can there, of, you know, talking to the sheriff's office, talking to fans, and then once the dust settles, it really hit me about just the fact that I had just spoken to him nine days prior uh, before his death, and that was surreal. It was also surreal that we had exchanged messages about a day and a half before his passing, just exchanging pleasantries. Um, and then also the subject matter, the, the entire interview was really centered on, you know, how he's pivoted from his post-NBA career to all his different projects he's doing with his storytelling company and coaching his daughter's AAU team and uh, overseeing a sports training facility. And it was very bittersweet because as much as Kobe had done a lot at 41 years of old and, you know, was a surefire first bout Hall of Famer because of his on-court accomplishments, like he had a whole second act uh, to live. And so, you know, it's, it's very tragic that he passed away at this young of an age knowing that he had so many other ambitions that he wanted to accomplish in life. Yeah, in reading your story on USA Today, uh, it seems like he was at peace with where he was at. He was you know, not the ruthless competitor on the court. He was more—he was more like the loving dad. You know, he was enjoying life, and uh, he seemed to be a, a different Kobe than the one we saw playing for the Lakers for 20 years. Yeah, and he, this was the same Kobe, frankly, that I saw. You know, maybe his last few years in the league, where even if he was playing on really bad teams, he accepted the reality is that he couldn't will that. Uh, into something different because of his injuries and his age and the roster construction. So there got to a point that I don't want to say Kobe threw up a white flag like he was still busting his tail to be able to play on a night-to-night basis and take care of his body. But he was accepting the fact that there's nothing that can be done to change his current circumstances of losing. And so with that, I think that's what really prompted him to announce that he's going to retire and eventually accept the farewell tour because uh, it was, I think, in his mind, a way of, of giving back, but also kind of a way of him counting a victory in a season where maybe if, uh, you know, th- there's going to be losses by every game, at least I can, you know, sh- shape and fine-tune certain parts of my narrative and, and share stories and, and you know, feed in this nostalgia with, you know, seeing opponents for the last time. And so that was very much in line with what I saw with Kobe, with how he was talking about his NBA career, but what was different was also talking to him about his entirely different, you know, day-to-day life, where, you know, he's overseen, you know, a handful of writers that are writing books for him, and he's very involved with the, you know, with the ideas, but also giving him them room to tap into the, their creativity. You know, he's very involved with his daughter and coaching her and, and basically coaching that team the almost the opposite way of how he handled teammates where when he was on the court in the NBA oftentimes he's yelling at them and chewing them out and demeaning them and here you know coaching 13 year old young women he's very nurturing and positive and constructive and so I think that window was very fascinating to see that you know this is one of many examples that show that that Kobe is a very layered and complex individual, but for better and for worse. You covered him for the Times and the Los Angeles Daily News. Covering Kobe, the player, what was that like? Was he inquisitive? Did he challenge you guys? For sure. Now, I I 
I caught him at a different window than his stage of his career. I don't have that firsthand perspective of what it was like covering a young Kobe straight out of a high school and trying to find his way onto a team that didn't readily accept him or, you know, his classes with Shaq or, you know, on a serious note, the the sexual assault charges that wound up getting dropped in Eagle, Colorado in 2003 and his trade demands after being frustrated with the front office in 2007. I, I don't have that day-to-day window. I'm certainly well aware that's part of his history and that, that it always will be, but I couldn't give you any first-hand perspective on the day-to-day nuances. I covered him first as a Lakers blogger with the LA Times, you know, during in the middle of his last championship run against the Celtics, and that took me through all the way the lockout shortened year, and then I covered him as a beat writer his last five years, uh, last four seasons, excuse me, with the Lakers, where, you know, you saw him, you know, clash with Dwight Howard and try to will his team into the playoffs, but then have career or season-ending injuries for three years in a row. So, and that window, I saw a, a part of the fiery side with him, especially at the beginning, but I also saw the, the softer side to him and, and the more patient side, but I think through that all, what I always saw was this, is what you saw is what you got with him. Uh, he was intellectually curious. He was not afraid to belittle you for asking a dumb question or challenging you. Um, but he respected you if you stood up to him, and he respected you if he knew that you were doing your homework and you're trying to do good work. And, and I think as much as, you know, I think on one hand Kobe is like any professional athlete, uh, that you know can be media savvy and understands kind of that dynamic and, and the advantages of having a good business relationship. But at the same time, I thought a lot of times he was also uh, very genuine with everyone that covered him, and he really judged you not on outlet that you worked for, but on kind of the st- kind of the the work ethic that you showed and your preparation and the quality of questions. And I think for a young up-and-comer when I first started out, like, I don't want to get this twisted for the listeners. You're not looking at these guys as idols. Like, that went away a long time ago. But I think because of my age and who Kobe was, like, he was a case study of, hey, you know, this is someone to show your worth and professionalism to and your work ethic and preparation. Um, and, I, you know, I've always thanked him for that, and I thought it really made me into a better reporter because he, he really tested you and demanded, you know, I think indirectly, you being prepared day to day to uh, to know how to cover a team correctly. Your reaction to his uh, his death, not just in the uh, United States, but around the world, uh, how surprised were you by that? I mean, I, I can equate it to uh, when I was a senior in high school back in 1980 when John Lennon uh, was shot and killed. Uh, my, you know, my, mom, my mother came in in early morning hours to, to wake me up to let me know about this, and it just it, it really it, it really shocked it, it hurt me a, a great deal because I was a big Beatles. I still am a big Beatles fan, but um, the Kobe's death. I mean, can he equate that to, to like John Lennon's passing? Yeah, for sure. I mean, on one hand, it's not like, I mean, fortunately it wasn't like Kobe was assassinated or anything, but there's still a tragedy to it because he was only 41 years old. Um, His 13-year-old daughter was also a casualty, and it was something that was unexpected. He died on a helicopter crash, Um, and that is something that was part of his routine throughout his career because he felt like it saved him a lot of time 
and as weird as this might sound, because it is a very expensive, you know, thing to have, um, it saved him money because it maximized his health. And when you're, you know, a living and walking multimillionaire, um, time is of the essence. Time is of your money. And so I think because of that, it was a worthy investment. But unfortunately, that was the thing that also cut his schedule way too short from a life standpoint. So I'm not surprised at all at the reaction. This is Kobe Bryant is it was one of the most renowned sports figures around the world. I mean, he lived in L.A. His whole you know he worked he played in LA his entire career in one of the biggest markets and glamour franchises with the Lakers. He appealed to both the Hollywood crowd and the common man in LA. You know, he's a global brand because he would make all these business trips to China and he played in the Olympics. And the NBA is also a global sport. So that part's not surprising, but I think, you know, it also uh, I think contributed to the to the immediately strong outpouring was the, the nature of it. If if he had died, you know, say 40, 50 years from now, of course it would have been a sad moment, but it would have been understandable. He would have had lived a good life and a full life. But here, this was something that was entirely unexpected for him to pass away at age 41. What would it mean if the Lakers win the championship this year? I mean, if, obviously dedicated to Kobe. What do you think? How, what would it mean for the Lakers to do that? Uh, it, it would be the world of them. Now, look, I, I don't want to misinterpret this or misstate this. The Lakers are always about winning championships, and th- their whole mindset this year was about winning because they know that they have a very unique window with LeBron James being healthy, and they got Anthony Davis last summer. Uh, it was of their mode to try to win for the first time in 2010 to begin with. So I don't want to say that the Lakers are suddenly now motivated to win, but I think because of Kobe's tragic passing and just the spirit of what he's about, um, you know, the Lakers are, I think, going to use that as another source of inspiration and motivation. And, and it would be, in, you know, a very, you know, I think bittersweet sports story to tell if that winds up happening because not only would it mean a lot to the Lakers um, because they had been through a five-year stretch of their worst uh, in franchise history, but it would be their first since Kobe Bryant won his in 2010 that there would be a lot of, I think, both nostalgic and painful symbolism for the team to process uh, if that were to happen. Well, Mark, I appreciate you coming on. Where can people follow you on Twitter for your NBA coverage? Yeah, you can follow me at first at usatoday.com, and uh, I'm on Twitter, Mark G underscore Medina. Instagram is Medina Syracuse. And, um, yeah, I'm covering the NBA with my colleague Jeff Zilgit. I'm based out in L.A., so it's a lot of of things on the Western Conference front while Jeff handles a lot of things out east. But, uh, yeah, it's it, it's never a dull moment in the NBA, and you know usually it's very fun because of everything going on on the court. And unfortunately, it's been a lot going on because of Kobe's tragic passing. But that's that's part of the job we sign up for. And so uh, whether it's joyful stories or sorrowful stories, we we have it all there. I just say today. Well, Mark, again, appreciate a few minutes, and again, great catching up with a fellow alum from York Daily Record, and hopefully we'll catch up with more as we get towards the NBA playoffs. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Back to wrap up the podcast in just a moment.
NASCAR fans, it's time to rev up the engines and play the Daily Gazette's Auto Racing Contest. Each week during the 36-week racing season, you pick 10 drivers. If you have the week's best point total, you'll receive a $50 Hannaford gift card. If you have the best point total for the season, you'll win a $250 Hannaford gift card. Be part of the fun. Go to dailygazette.com slash autoracing. Get your motor running and play today. Back to wrap up the podcast, but before I do, I want to congratulate Michael Newhart of Schenectady, who won not only the River Sportsbook Daily Gazette U Pick'em NFL Contest, he captured the National Contest, finishing ahead of over 90,000 participants. He won $1,000 for the Gazette Contest and $5,000 for the National Contest. Congratulations, Michael. Well, if you're a college hockey fan... Look for my weekly ECAC Hockey Faceoff selections at dailygazette.com slash sports slash parting shots. You can participate in the Faceoff selections by emailing your picks to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Union Hockey beat writer Mike McGannum joins me for the next College Hockey-centric podcast on Friday, February 7th. We will look back at last weekend's games against Harvard and Dartmouth and talk about a potential goalie controversy for the Dutchman. I'll also speak with USCHO.com senior writer Jimmy Connolly about a potential change to Hockey East. If you have questions about Union Hockey, Mike and I will answer them. Send your questions a shot at dailygazette.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I'd like to thank Ian Anderson, Ben Anderson, Liam Gleason, and Mark Medina for coming on the show. The Parting Shots podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and CastBox. Subscribe today. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot at dailygazette.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Slapshots. The views expressed in the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers, I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Party Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports.